It was almost 5 a.m. when I got Lonnie to the Dolores. I half carried him to the apartment, through the parking lot and up the back stairs. Once I got him inside, I stripped off his filthy clothes and threw him into the tub. I left him soaking in a couple of inches of tepid water while I called Ron Fegley, a doctor friend. Jesus Christ, Ron said when I told him how many pills Lonnie had apparently swallowed. He must have a hell of a tolerance for drugs. I think he's had his share, I said. He probably vomited up most of them earlier tonight, and it has been better than eight hours since he swallowed them. But if I were you, I'd take him to the emergency room pronto. That's my advice. I don't think I can do that, I said. Attempted suicide means psychiatric confinement and possibly a police report. I don't know what kind of criminal record Lonnie might have, but I don't want to put him in jail or in Longview. Besides, he said he didn't want to go to the hospital. He's in a great condition to decide for himself, Ron said acidly. Did it occur to you that he might be better off in jail or in some detox center? I'm not going to make that choice for him. At least, not while he's in this kind of shape. Then keep him warm and keep an eye on him. If he starts looking shocky or goes into convulsions, call an ambulance, and I mean quick. You know, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do if he dies on you. I thought it over and said, I'll just have to take that chance. It's your life, Ron said, and his. After hanging up on Ron, I pulled Lonnie out of the tub and dried him off. With the dirt and blood washed off him, he looked a lot better than he had in the Encantada Motel, like a haggard, graying version of the kid I remembered. His face was bruised, but the split lip wasn't serious, and although the black eye was mousing up, it wasn't a bad injury either. I took a look at his arms, expecting to find needle tracks. To my surprise, he didn't show any. What he did have was an oval twelve-inch scar on his right side that pinched the flesh between his hip and his rib cage, exactly as if some animal had taken a bite out of him. It looked like a gunshot wound, although it was awfully large for that. I noticed that his fingertips were heavily calloused, which meant he hadn't lost touch with his music, whatever else he might have lost. Hoisting him up over my shoulder, I carried Lonnie into the bedroom and lowered him onto the bed. He groaned as I covered him with blankets. Where am I? he said groggily. You're at my place. He nodded and smiled as if that were good news. Then he fell back to sleep. After putting Lonnie to bed, I took some fresh bedclothes out of the hall closet and made the living room sofa up for myself. It wasn't until I actually sat down on the couch that I realized how cold, wet, and tired I was. I stripped off my clothes, curled up on the cushions, and listened to the December storm tapping its nails against the living room window. In the bedroom, I could hear Lonnie snoring evenly. I closed my eyes, telling myself that I'd just doze off for a few moments, and immediately fell asleep. I woke up around one o'clock that Friday afternoon, and the first things I heard were the measured sound of Lonnie's snoring and the patter of the icy rain on the living room window. I walked down the hall and took a look at him in the gray afternoon light. The color had returned to his face, and he seemed to be sleeping soundly. I thought about trying to wake him, 
then thought better of it. The fact that he hadn't died on me in the night was a relief. But I knew that Lonnie wouldn't see it that way. Junkies have a saying, dying is easy. I let him sleep. After fixing some coffee in the kitchenette, I gathered Lonnie's clothes together and went through them, looking for some clues to his recent past. I found a slip of paper in his shirt pocket with a look.